You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. And I just have to start, I want to take these moments to let you know a little bit about myself as we get into this and we figure each other out. I like movies. I probably shouldn't like movies, right? Because we talked about distractions and those can be a huge distraction. Uh, because you're like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is big, and you can spend like a whole week just watching those movies. Like, I'm taking the week off, I'm watching the MCU again. I just got to catch up with everything. And so I don't know when that world is going to stop being developed, but it just goes on forever. And then sometimes you catch a movie and you go, man, I forgot. Like, you probably all or most of you, unless, unless you're super holy, you probably have um, a a movie that when it's on, if you're just kind of scrolling through channels, you stop and watch it. You're like, I'm going to watch this movie. It doesn't matter if it's the 3,000th time you've seen The Shawshank Redemption. You're like, I'm watching it because TNT is showing it, and I feel like they show it half the time. So you just stop and watch it. We all have those. And then there's movies that you forgot you've seen. You're like, oh my gosh, I really like it. I I forgot how much I enjoyed watching this. So one of those for me is Frequency. I don't know if you've seen Frequency, but like it's this weird kind of time travel, you know, Caviezel's there talking to his dad 30 or 40 years ago about what's going on, and they're, they're solving a crime together uh, is essentially how that's going, right? So it's weird, but they're going back and forth talking, and they're solving this, this crime together, father-son, and other cool things happen in the meantime, and it just makes me wish, and maybe you don't, it makes me wish, I wish I could do that. Like, I wish I could have a conversation, even with past Hans. Like, give me, give me 10 months ago, and I would love to tell him some things. Give me about you guys. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but, but you just, we love those little moments. They seem kind of cool. Back to the Future, one, two, and three, doesn't matter which one. Uh, like, I, I want to find a DeLorean that actually has a flux capacitor, go back in time, and change things. Now, we would love to know that. Uh, some of us also would love to look forward into either what's going to happen in our lives or helicopter parents like, really want to know what's going on in our kids' lives, going to make sure that's okay. So we have these things that we want to know, like, how is it going to turn out? How is it going to go? Will my kids be okay? Will, my, will I have grandkids? Will I get married? I don't know if I'll get married. Can I go back in time and fix this thing or change this thing or this situation? We would all love those, but if we were honest with ourselves... We would more than likely only change things that pertain to us. Like, I, you know, we'll be like Biff in Back to the Future 2. Like, I want the sports almanac, and I want to be able to bet on every significant outcome that's going to happen ever, and I want to do that and make myself an empire. That's what I want to do. Or I want to give myself the lottery numbers for the, you know, the $500 million no one claims it lottery. I want to give myself those numbers, go back in time, Hans, you need to do this, so that then, as I'm sitting here, I went into the past, like, then all of a sudden I'm wearing nice clothes or whatever it is because I made that decision a while ago telling myself. We would love those, but we get rather selfish about it. We really just want to do it for our lives and our things and our benefit, and we don't even think about the fact that all of the other subsequent things that would roll from anything that might have changed. We don't think about that. We just think about ourselves and how we could better our lives. Now, you might be going, what on earth does this have to do with the book of Acts? Which is a pretty cool thing. Well, imagine if you can get back in time to Pentecost. No, that's not really it. Um, what I would like us to think about this morning, and we'll see it multiple times in Acts chapter 2, is that God, in his sovereignty, planned out the sending of Jesus, 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit before the earth began. Everything that needed to happen to get to Acts chapter two happened. There was no, oh man, I didn't think about this outcome or I didn't think about that outcome or whatever else it might be. And it was a totally selfless, not selfish move on the part of God for our salvation, that he did it all. And you'll see that in his speech. Something you need to know about the book of Acts is that a lot of the material within it, and this is just like how Roman novels were built at the time, are speeches. That that's, the speeches move the, the narrative along. And so you're gonna see a speech in Acts chapter two, you'll see a speech in Acts chapter four, you'll see a speech in Acts chapter eight, nine, you'll see a speech uh, in Acts chapter 13, you'll see Paul giving his testimony multiple times. You remember, we all remember the speech in Acts chapter 17 where he's talking about talking to the Greeks and he's like, I see that you worship an unknown God. Well, let me tell you, that's Jesus. Like we have all these moments and speeches make up a big part of Acts. And so we're gonna go through Peter's speech on Pentecost. And it's an interesting passage to preach, not because of the, necessarily the content, but Pentecost happened one time. The spirit in salvation history had to come once and kind of start the indwelling thing that we now all get to be recipients of. So we don't repeat Pentecost, unlike if you read sometimes a New Testament letter or epistle, and it's like, be kind to one another. Like, well, we can always figure out how we're gonna be kind to one another. So when we hear about the Pentecost speech, how do we actually both understand what happened and then apply it in a way that makes sense? Because the event itself was one time. The event of Pentecost was one time, and the benefit of Pentecost is ongoing. And so we're going to have to hear a little bit of both of those. But what we see, that theme woven throughout Peter's speech, is that God was planning this the whole time. God was planning this the whole time. And he's going to point to multiple things that happened, both making a statement about what God had done and then using specific Old Testament prophecies that this was going to come to pass. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go march through the passage in such a way that allows for us to take these chunks and ask and answer certain questions. There'll be about five questions that we're going to look at. What did God do? How did the people, the crowds, not the disciples, but how did the crowds respond? And then how do the crowds know what's going on? That's the third how did the crowd respond? How do we respond? So those are the questions that we're going to go through as we get into the book of Acts. So we're going to start with that first question. What did God do on Pentecost, which is after the ascension of Jesus? Remember, Jesus floated up into the sky and everyone was staring at him and the angel said, get to work. And so here we are. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at the first five verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, those would be the disciples, were all in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they're at that time dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men. So that's the first five verses, and there's going to be nations under heaven here in a moment. What did God do as we look at those verses? This is what we see. He brought the Holy Spirit to the disciples. That's the simple answer. What did God do? Holy Spirit came. Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to come. But let's just start with Pentecost so we can do math. I'm bad at details, so I always have to research them and remind myself of them. Jesus was on the earth 40 days after his resurrection. His resurrection marked a Jewish festival, the Feast of First Fruits. So Jesus is called the first fruit of the resurrection. And then seven full weeks, so you have to go 49 days, then you start 
Pentecost, which is the harvest, right? We're celebrating now what has happened, uh, called the Feast of Weeks, where the harvest begins. Now we've gone through the harvest season. And so Jesus is on the earth 40 days after his resurrection. Now we're at Pentecost, which is Greek for 50. So now we're on the 50th day. So the disciples have been waiting 10 days since Jesus left for the next step. 10 days, so that's where we are. So while they're waiting, now we're at Pentecost. We've traveled 10 days into the future between chapter one and chapter two. There we go. And the Spirit comes. And tongues of fire, divided tongues. I wish I could have everybody have a lighter. We just hold it over our heads for the rest of the sermon. (laughs) Hands would probably burn. But like, yeah, so tongues of fire. I don't know what that looks like. You know, but, but these little flames come down and everyone starts speaking in tongues. Now we have to specify that because if you read in like 1 Corinthians, tongues are different than what we see in Acts chapter 2. Here in Acts chapter 2, what it seems God is doing is dispersing the ability to speak spoken languages that these disciples did not know previously. So they're there and the, and the spirit is spreading out and now all of these people in the room are speaking languages of the Greco-Roman world and people are hearing it and they're about to hear the mighty works of God done in their own language. So as we see the spirit coming, there's already with it power and proclamation of what God is doing in this world. So that just kind of sets the stage for the rest of chapter two up until that last paragraph at the end, which we'll do next week. So this is what they see. Everyone's speaking these languages. Now around, starting in verse five, around the crowd or around the disciples are people dwelling. Verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Just to think about that, more often, more likely, or what could be the case is some have traveled there for the festival and others were just living there from other countries, living in Jerusalem. But there were in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, right, the rushing sound and the fire, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. That's what the tongues were in this. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Meaning they, don't, they should know my language. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We, are, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mock, saying they are filled with new wine. So we have, what did God do? He brought the Spirit. Now that second question, how did the crowds respond? Well, you see two responses, don't you? There's surprise, awe, and just just amazement at the fact that people are now hearing things they've never heard, heard before by people they don't know in the language that they speak. So there's amazement at what's going on as people hear the gospel in their own language. I just have to pause because I think at times it's, it's important to highlight what we see here and how that should change how we view what we do in the world. But God's concern is for there to be churches, believers of every tribe and tongue nation, everybody. And an essential element of that is learning the language of the people so that you can communicate the scriptures to them in a way they'll understand. 
One of the most difficult works of the cross-cultural missionary is learning the culture and the language of the people so that he or she can be sure that what is being said is being understood. Now, I know of a guy who took six years ministering amongst an unreached people group before he even declared the name of Jesus so that he could be sure that when he was talking about Jesus, he knew what they were understanding. Six years, so he just lived among them, he learned their customs, he learned what they loved, he learned what grieved them, and it took about six years for him to get to a spot where he finally felt comfortable declaring the things of God. And so I just have to say, for those of you in the room who go, I really wanna do missions, I want you to do it too. I want you to be so committed to it that you go, I am going to learn the language of the people so I can share Christ with them in a way that they understand. Because look at what he's doing there. Even though the people who were there might have been able to speak a language or understand a different language, what did God do? He brought it to the language that they knew, that they understood, that they were raised in, so that they could hear, hear the work of God. So that whatever we can do as brothers and sisters in Christ to support the work of cross-cultural missions that specifically targets learning the language and translating the scriptures into languages that they hear uh, so that uh, they always are able to engage in a way that they understand, we need to support. So they see that and they're surprised because they're hearing it. And then others, right, we see that right there in verse 13, they're filled with new wine. They say, this can't be. There's no way this can be. Now this is, uh, leads us to another moment where we can just kind of realize this happens. But so often, when you see the work of God, even believers do this, we try to explain it away. There's no way, no, surely, now think about the logic here, surely they're drunk, and in their drunkenness are able to speak fluently in my language. That must be it. That maybe they heard something before, maybe they saw a commercial, maybe somebody was talking over there, and their subconscious picked it up, and the alcohol allowed for them to then declare these things in God. For them, that makes more sense than God is at work. So some aren't on, go, God's at work, and some go, there's no way God's at work, they're just drunk let alone the fact that that really doesn't make much sense at all, at all. But it's still what happens because for us, for the world, it is so much easier to try and explain away the mighty work of God than believe it. The energy that we have to put into explaining it away is significant. We talked about this actually about a month ago. We looked at the miraculous and just going like, it's, it's hard for us and we will always try to find a way to say that must not be God. That must not be God, it must be something else. And so they go ahead and go with what makes sense, which is they're just being crazy, maybe they're mumbling in a way that I think that's my language, but that's not it. So you see two things, there's a group of people who believe what's going on, they see it and are amazed, and there's a group of people who respond with just going, there's no way, there's no way. So now we're left with a gap. Now what is the work of the missionary in this gap but to bring sense to it? Okay, so that's what Peter's about to do. Peter's about to bring sense to what's going on because the crowds are confused and they don't have the spirit. So their ability to actually understand what's going on needs an interpreter and that's what Peter's gonna be in this moment through the spirit that he is now indwelled with. So how did the crowd know what's going on? Because Peter is about to show them. That's the third thing, that God, was, God is at work. And this is a big chunk of the speech. 37, or 14 through 36 is where we're gonna go right now. The speech in 14 through 36. But standing with the 11, because they had picked a replacement, 
Peter lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, because it's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. So if you're here this morning and that's you, it's kind of early. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's going back in time now to talk about something God said was going to happen. We're time traveling. He's going back to speak about what God said through Joel. It's hard to date the book of Joel because there's no, no real king mentioned or time surrounding it. But we're talking hundreds of years before Pentecost, Joel spoke about the moment that they're going to see. And that shows up in these next four verses. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pull out, pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and even my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, they shall prophesy, and I will show them wonders in heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Sounds a little ominous. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall be, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's quoting from Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, in those those seven verses. And Joel is speaking about a day of the Lord. Throughout the prophets, you'll see this comment about a day of the Lord. And it's a day of God's visitation, a day of God's judgment. And there are multiple days of the Lord, and there's like the big D day of the Lord as well. So a day of the Lord would be when uh, the Babylonians come and they take them away. That's a day of judgment. God visited his people and punished them for their sinfulness, put them into exile, but then he promised them that he would bring them back. Joel is speaking about a day, and before that day comes and God restores, you see the spirit descending, and things that have never happened before are going to happen. The Spirit will be on all people and they will have visions and they'll dream dreams. And then there's this speaking of judgment that's going to come because the coming of the Spirit is a sign that God's working out His plan. And that really in God's eyes, it's just, a, it's just you know, a day. For us, it might be hundreds or thousands of years, but that God's judgment is going to come. But anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So the first thing that he does is he points back in time to the prophecy from Joel about the Spirit. And he'll go back and forth. He's gonna speak the scriptures, he's gonna comment, he's gonna speak the scriptures, he's gonna comment. So now he's about to make a comment, verse 22, that this was part of the sovereign plan of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, and just underline this because it's important, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So we're gonna stop there. Just verses 22, 23, and 24, Peter's about to give a comment. He goes, okay, so what you see in Joel, the spirit, all a part of what Jesus is doing. So let me just say that the coming of the spirit which comes after the coming of the Messiah into this world. This was all supposed to happen, and it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Meaning this, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. What you see happening, the crucifixion of Jesus, 
Wasn't a mistake. That this was something God planned long ago. Before the foundations of the world, this was planned. It wasn't as if it was like, I need a plan B. And then there's the flood. He goes, I need a plan C. Then Israel doesn't work out. He's like, I need a plan, I need a plan D. And now we're in this moment with the Spirit. Now we need E, F, and G. You know, God is not, he's not sitting there calling audibles as it goes on. He knew what was needed before the world was created. And he knew they would acquire the Son of God. The Son of God would have to die for our salvation according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I was reading uh, just Friday or Saturday, Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, don't you know that I have the authority to let you go? Because Jesus is being a little squirrely, like he usually is, right? Meaning like, hey, are you God? It, it is as you have said, right? Like he just, he just uses these lines. He's never like, yeah, dude. He just says it like that and you go, oh, he is. So I read, I go, yeah, he's saying that. And everyone else goes, he didn't really say yes. So Pilate goes, Jesus, don't you know that I have the authority to let you go? You don't have to die. And then Jesus goes, you don't have any authority God didn't give you. Now, that's his line. Like, like anything that you're able to do is because God put you in the position to do it, which is just a crazy thought to me. God put Pilate in place so that Jesus, the son of God, might be crucified at his hands so that the definite plan and foreknowledge of God might be done. So there's Pilate with his little myopia thinking, hey man, I have the power to do this, look at me. Jesus is going, you don't have anything that hasn't been given to you. Nothing, nothing. Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So we have the prophecy of the Spirit from Joel. Then we have Peter's comment on, this is planned long ago. We got to where we are, not, by, not just by mistake. We got to where we are because God had planned for it to be. And now he's about to prophesy about the resurrection. He's going to continue in verse 25. For David says, King David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also filled, uh, will dwell with hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence, or in your presence there's fullness of joy, or however you want to hear that. So now he's quoting from Psalm 16. And David says in Psalm 16, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. You won't let your Holy One descend to Hades. No, 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 you have made known to me the paths of righteousness. Full of, I'll be full of gladness in your presence. Which if you're reading the Psalm, you can talk about maybe an earthly experience and think, yeah, that's good, I have that. Earthly experience, there's total joy in the presence of God. We can be glad and we can rejoice. But he's about to turn it right here and point to what is actually going on. Now remember, he's in Jerusalem, he's at the temple. Just by the temple is what's called the city of David. And he's able essentially to say, David's dead. So this can't be about David. David did seek decay. Listen to what he says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about David that he both died and was buried. You know, it's like, you know, got it, know that. And his tomb is with us to this day. You can imagine Peter pointing, like, it is right over there. There he is. I can with great confidence say, David's dead. Being therefore a prophet, 
And knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, that's the Davidic covenant, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received, this, received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he quotes Psalm 16, right? So we had Joel, we had a, a comment about how God had planned this forever. Now he goes to David, he goes to the Psalm, he goes, even David talked about the resurrection because he knew that God had promised a descendant. And, and so he's prophesying about this descendant going, you will not let me see corruption. Peter goes, you put two and two together, David's dead. So he's decayed. There must be someone else about whom David speaks. Well, it's Jesus. Peter was there the day of the resurrection. He saw him. There was an empty tomb. The other disciples who were there with Peter, as Peter is speaking, what are, what are they doing? But they go, yeah, I saw it. Jesus was raised. He was alive. He did not see corruption. So he goes, look, look at what happened in Psalm 16. Now look at what's true. Jesus rose. Psalm 16 is not about David, it's about Jesus. It's about what he did. So there he's exalted at the right hand of God. He has ascended and now he is sending the spirit, which is what you're seeing and hearing. Joel speaks about it. David speaks about it. Peter then goes, this was planned from long ago. Look at these markers. Any one of those, hundreds of years in advance, spoken into existence like it happened? No. Couldn't happen. Wouldn't happen. Something that I also like about Peter in this moment, and again in chapter four, which will be in chapter four in a few weeks, this is the same guy who at the trial of Jesus was like, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know this guy. I've never met this guy. We are not friends. We've never hung out. When you say Jesus, I say Jesus who? And then now he is standing in front of thousands going, it's Jesus. Just want you to know it's Jesus. Everything that you're seeing and everything that's going on is Jesus. Well, what's the difference between the trial and now? The spirit. The difference between the trial of Jesus and this moment is the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit glorifies, speaks of, shines a light on. Sometimes we don't know what glorify means. It just means make known, make seen, make evident. Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. Peter now with the Spirit is like, hey guys, I got a story to tell. And now he's able to talk about Jesus with like nothing. Why? Because it's the Spirit that is giving Jesus or giving Peter the words. He continues in verse 34, another citation. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I've made your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. So now we have another Psalm, Psalm 110. Quotes David. Jesus has quoted the psalm before too. This can't be about David, it's about me because he's calling the Lord his Lord. Lord said to my Lord. David's not calling himself my Lord. 
The Lord said to my Lord. So now Peter quotes Psalm 110 to go, Jesus is Lord and Christ, meaning he is both the, has the power to grant salvation. He is the, the mediator, in a sense, of our salvation in Christ, which is another word for anointed or Messiah, that he is the Lord, he is the Messiah. And he brings that whole speech to a point, doesn't he? Let everyone hear then today that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Now, that's a nervous moment if we think about ourselves there, isn't it? I mean, I stand up for thousands of people. I don't know what's going to happen. Just 51 days ago, they're killing him. He's in the ground. Now, here I am about to tell them. Some of them, those same people who saw Jesus on trial, and I'm going to tell them he's Lord and Christ. And there's this moment, right? So how did they know what was going on in the crowds? Peter shows them. So now the question is, how did the crowd respond? And I love this answer, or this, this, this clarification that Luke gives us in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, this, this speech, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so what did Peter not say in that moment? How do the crowds respond, repentance and baptism? I doubt everyone repented and was baptized. But 3,000 is kind of a lot. And just like that, the church grows from about 120 to 3,000-ish, 120. In a moment, because of that. I want to help us with these two words, repent and be baptized, because... Because you, could, you can maybe get confused on the idea of repentance, which is like, okay, so I, I'm, I, I'm not saved if I haven't repented today. I'm not saved if I haven't repented today. Like we're kind of in and out of our salvation based upon whether or not we have done those things. So they go, what should we do? Peter gives them these words, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so what is repentance? You've probably heard this before, but it's a turning, a turning from our ways to God's ways. So you can't put your faith in Jesus without actually making a declaration that something is not true and something else is. You have to turn from what you thought was right to him. You have to realize that what you were doing is not going to save you, and the person who can save you is Jesus. And belief in him demands that we release certain things, specifically control and power over our own lives, and a thought that we know what is best. Repent, turn, and then be baptized. Now, this is a hard one for us because there are probably people even in this room who have put their faith in Jesus and never been baptized. We go, well, am I not saved because I haven't done this or whatever else? And if we believe in salvation by grace and baptism is a work, then does baptism, is that a part of saving you? Is that a requirement for being saved? You haven't been baptized, you haven't been saved. And we have gotten really confused about this. So I'll just tell you how baptism is generally seen in the book of Acts. 
In the book of Acts, you will find just about everybody who puts faith in Jesus is immediately baptized. There isn't really another way for them to think about it. And there's a new church, there isn't this moment where like, oh, I heard about Jesus 20 years ago. There is no, I just heard about Jesus. And so for our early brothers and sisters, specifically in the book of Acts, and you'll see it again in Romans 6 as uh, Paul is talking about faith and baptism, is these two events were seen so similarly that they were almost the same act. As we have the scriptures, we go, okay, well, works don't save, so baptism doesn't save. But they were tying these two things together because they had no other way to identify themselves with Jesus. I turn and I identify myself by being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Peter knows, if you read his epistles, he doesn't link baptism to salvation. He doesn't tie these two things together because that's just the washing of water. He knows that. But what he's saying is turn from your ways and identify yourself. Identify yourself with Jesus. And how has Jesus asked us to identify ourselves with the faith community but through baptism? So Peter is telling them, repent, turn, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. He's tying that moment together because that's the only way they knew how to talk about it. And Jesus had given them the great commission. What was that, right? Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So in their heads, there's no delay between your faith and your baptism. That's not a part of it. So that's why those two things are together, but we don't need to see the exhortation for baptism to be seen as a work that shows or proves or gets us saved. It does identify us demonstrate, I guess, our salvation, but it doesn't make us saved. Faith saves. Baptism identifies. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's already working out his Holy Spirit theology, which is the fancy word for, or the unfancy word for pneumatology because we like big words. So he goes, you'll receive the Holy Spirit through faith. You will receive it. Now that's all about what happened here. There's a question of how do we respond? We've heard these things. We've seen these things. Now we've heard Peter's speech. We've seen what the crowds do. We've seen that they've come to faith. What do we do? Do we just go, man, that was cool. That was cool. I'm really glad that those people got saved. That's neat. And I don't think that's what we should do. Because what we see in Acts chapter two, both in the coming of the Spirit is a promise Jesus made being fulfilled. And in Peter's speech, we see that even Jesus who spoke about it, it was spoken about through Joel, it was spoken about through David. And in Peter's speech, before the foundations of the world, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this Jesus was given up. I think what this teaches us as followers of Christ, and if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I think what this teaches us is that there's really only one person who's in control. It's not you, it's not me. And there's really only one person who knows what they're doing. I cannot even make my yard look good. To think I have any kind of control over the course of history that leads to the salvation for the world through Jesus is a joke. I can control so little, so little. And yet I think I know what's better for my life than God. 
And yet I think that I have more power over my own destiny than God. And I think that if I could go back in time, I would make better decisions and be a better person. False, 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 every single time. I think the biggest thing that we need to see today is that God knows what he's doing. Salvation was not a mistake. And there is no better person in whom to trust than Jesus. Our lives, we can't control them. We don't know. So we should just surrender that control to him, be it for the first time or for the 50th. So if you're here today and you're not sure if you put your faith in Jesus, my encouragement to you is the same as Peter's. Trust him. Turn from your sin and trust him. Realize that he is who he says he is, that the scriptures attested to it happening centuries before he came into this world, that even when the scriptures attested to it, it was planned according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that this was going to happen. There's probably no better place for us to be than in relationship with the one who knows the beginning, the middle, and the end, but who he himself has none. That's a better place to be than where any of us could. For believers in this room, I want you to have confidence in what God is working out in this world. I want you to trust in the same way that Jesus did in what is going on. He knew. He saw it. When he says to Pilate, you don't have any authority God doesn't give you. Like that, is, that is a moment for me to go, okay. Then there's going to be nothing too crazy in this world. Nothing. If Jesus can march to his death knowing that this is a part of how God was going to bring salvation, I can trust him. I can trust him. So, I would also add this. I would really encourage you this morning if you have put your faith in Jesus to be baptized if you have not. To identify with him. Whether that obedience comes at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years after your profession of faith in Christ, It doesn't matter to me because I want to celebrate any obedience that comes, any obedience that happens. And so if you say, man, I just didn't realize that it was that important. I need to follow through in obedience. Then I want you to follow through in obedience and we want to support that. So talk to me, talk to one of the elders and go, I want to do this and we will be sure to provide the way to celebrate that together as a faith family, our identification with Jesus through baptism. There's no shame in going, I didn't know. 15 years in the faith, I had zero idea it was this important. That's a sign of bad discipleship, which the church is often guilty of. It's not a sign uh, that you should not follow through in obedience. So let's stop trying to pretend that we know what would be best for our lives, that we have the best plans and the best heart or anything else, and rather let's just surrender control and hope to the one who seems to have been doing it from eternity past. All that has been worked out for us to be here even in this moment, hearing his words spoken about his work, not our own. He receives our faith, our joy, and he receives the glory. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and good and loving. You are kind, you are generous, and you sent your son into this world, and you, Father, Son, and Spirit, you knew before this world was created what was to be, in that we rejoice. We thank you for the salvation we've received, 
We would ask you this morning, God, that you would encourage our hearts, point us to you, and by your spirit, prompt us and challenge us to put greater faith in what you were working out, to remove control of our lives and just hand everything over to you. For you were good. You sent your son. We have life. And we rejoice in that this morning. We prayed in Christ's name. Amen.